today on Fuzzy Logic. We're talking about the weather. It's hot and I'm sick of it. We want to know why it's happening, what's going on with it all. I mean, really, let's just make it end. And maybe we'll even talk about keeping cool on Fuzzy because, you know, keeping cool is going to help us feel better in the heat. All that and more coming up today on Fuzzy Logic. And... Clearly the heat's just got to me today. I don't know what's going on with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to claim... Look, I've got a whole article on this, and my brain is completely scattered this morning. I had all this music lined up, I had fantastic stuff happening, and it's just not working. And there's science behind it. There's science behind what's going on here, and I'm going to talk about it later on. If only just to, you know bring back some dignity to the poor way that I'm handling the start of this show. But, um, look, let me stop talking and um, talk to some other people and get them to take over. And uh, maybe their brains aren't quite as fried by the heat as mine is. Let's look at who's in the studio today. We've got Alice with us. Good morning, Alice. Good morning, Brod. How's your brain coping in the heat? Maybe a smidge better than yours, but I wouldn't want a bit much more than a smidge. <laughs> I'm from Townsville, so I should be used to the heat, but it's humid heat, not dry heat, so I'm not really used to these temperatures either. There's a big difference, isn't there? Very, very much so. Yeah. And in fact, yesterday I think it dropped down to 5% humidity in Canberra, which is very, very low. There's not much water in the air when it's at 5%, so yeah, it's definitely a very dry heat up here, or down here, rather, um, in Canberra. Up the mountain, but down down geographically yes. in terms of the world, I guess. That's right. And uh, also joining us in the studio today is Jared. Good morning, Jared. Oh, good morning, Brod. Uh, um, how, how are you coping? Oh, I'm coping pretty well, all things considered. <laughs> uh, I'm actually from Tasmania, so uh, you know any heat to speak of whatsoever is is a new thing to me. So um, it's been been quite exciting to get these high temperatures. We get pretty excited if it's you know mid twenties in Tasmania. So right, yeah, it's well, been quite a change novelty. for you. you you're yeah. not completely dissolved, uh, melting in the in the heat. Well, not so far. I think if it if it keeps up for much longer, there may be. Maybe some issues for me, I think. But uh, hopefully I make it through the show today, at least. Yes, yes, we hope so. Um, it is nice and air-conditioned in here, so maybe that's my problem. It's not the heat, it's the fact I'm in air-conditioning now. My brain doesn't know what to do. It just wants to rest and relax, and who knows what's going on. Anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig myself out of this hole later on when we talk about what the heat actually does to you. But for now, let's get to our usual stuff on Fuzzy. And this day in science, today being the 19th of January, a Sunday, uh, what happened on this day in science? Well, today in uh, 1736, we celebrate the birth of James Watt. Of course, if you had parents, uh, not parents, if you had grandparents like mine, you'd know that Watt invented the steam engine. Because whenever you'd say, you know, they'd mutter something, you'd say, What? They go, Watt invented the steam engine. They pardon. Oh, pardon? Um, anyway, Watt did invent the steam engine. He was a Scottish instrument maker and inventor. Um, uh, who did some amazing work, um, worked on the Newcomen steam engine, uh, which was simple in design, acted as a pump, and a jet of cold water was used to condense the steam. But what improved on it by adding a separate condenser and a system of valves to make this piston return to the top of the cylinder after descending. He took out a patent for it in 1769 and eventually adapted the engine to rotary motion, making it suitable for a huge range of industrial purposes. 
So there you go. What invented the steam engine? Uh, also on this day in 1894, um, there was a gentleman who showed off a, uh, a little uh, something he had, which was uh, the properties of liquid air. He'd managed to create liquid air uh, and pr- also produce solid air. And he did this at a meeting of the Royal Institution. Uh, so he managed to get liquid air at a temperature of minus 192 degrees Celsius and uh, the solid air colder than that. Now, I'm wondering if you know the name of this gentleman. Are you too? Mm-hmm. I, I didn't say I was going to quiz you, but I am. Well, it's, it's, it's not Dewar, is it? It is. Any chance? It is. Uh-huh. Yes. What an appropriate is, name. Well, that's, that's <laughs> where we get the name for all the things we carry around, uh, things like liquid nitrogen in, which mm-hmm. is minus 196 degrees Celsius. They're all called Dewars, thanks to Professor James Dewar, um, who had a there lot to do with getting stuff cool. And that makes me wonder, when you talk about making liquid air and solid air, you you can cool down oxygen to make it a liquid, and it's actually a really pretty light blue colour, which is something I only discovered fairly recently. I wouldn't have imagined that it would be so pretty to watch. But Mm. I wonder what was becoming solid. How cold did you say the solid air was again? Uh, It doesn't say here. Um, It says uh, liquid air was obtained at the temperature of minus 192 degrees Celsius. So not quite Um, cold enough for liquid nitrogen then, but close. Well, it's it's funny because, um, of course... If he's if he's gone with air here, that's a mixture of nitrogen and oxygen. Mm. Um, so it's, it's not necessarily pure oxygen, but I think he's just taken it out the air because um, I don't think they had the, the purification techniques no. to separate it out. So whether the mix uh, cools down to a liquid at a slightly higher temperature um, or not, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I guess you can get solid carbon dioxide or dry ice at much warmer temperatures, but there's only a tiny yeah. weeny bit of carbon dioxide in air. So there you go. It would be interesting yeah. to see what constituent parts were freezing at what temperatures as you say yeah yeah definitely uh also on this day in 1903 i'm going to quiz you again the quiz word oh, no. well. all right we'll listen now. 1903 um uh, a coded radio exchange happened between cape cod and uh cornwall england who who was talking to each other Oh, I'm afraid I'm drawing blanks on this one. Well, right. you'd think someone in America and someone in the UK. That's right, and re- reasonably important people in both these Wouldn't places. Wouldn't be the presidents and the prime ministers or the bosses of the military. Well, you're right with the president from the US. It was President uh, Theodore Teddy Roosevelt, and uh, over in England it was someone a bit higher up than the prime minister. The Queen or King? King. It was King Edward the uh, Seventh at the time. Um, they had a little coded, coded uh, greeting between each other um, back in oh. 1903 uh, using the radio. There you go. I wonder what they talked about. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very interesting indeed. Uh, and finally, on this day in uh, 1904, uh, uh, one of the probably biggest inventors to come out of the United States, uh, which is, of course, Edison, uh, was issued a patent for an electric automobile. Um Designed with a driving motor that may be conveniently and effectively utilised for the purpose of charging the batteries. A man ahead of his time. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it's it's just amazing to see. You know, um, it's it's uh, it's got similarities to the the electric vehicles like the Prius and that that's out there now that you know uses when you're braking it uses that to charge up your batteries and this this charged itself by reversing the rotation of the motor armature um the electric motor converted to a generator for charging the batteries and a clutch was then used to disconnect the motor from the driving wheels during charging um or the wheels could also be jacked up uh during the charging operation um 
An unusual operation, the motor ran from storage batteries to power your car. Back in 1904. Why is it so difficult to make an electric car now if they were doing it in 1904? just seems crazy. I wonder what sort of range it had. Yeah, well, that's true. That's true. Things were, were certainly a lot closer. Uh, or, well, not necessarily, but you didn't, you didn't travel quite as far um, necessarily in those days, as, as often as we do now. Because um, I remember they were talking about a, an electric car trial within Canberra um, which I thought was a really good idea because, you know, Canberra's a, a pretty... Compact city. Uh, yeah, that's right. You don't normally travel. And then I thought, well, but everyone drives to Sydney and that sort of thing. I'm like, would it, would it make it to Sydney? That would be the big test. I think, I think that would increase adoption if people could do it around Canberra and also get to Sydney with it. Then I reckon people would take it up. <laughs> Maybe. Anyway, I did say we we're going to talk about hot and cold stuff today. Um, you know, some hot stuff to explain what's actually going on. And some cold stuff to make you feel a little bit better um, in this hot weather. The cool change has come through, but it can get a lot colder than this, can't it, Alice? It certainly can. As, as Broderick just said, we were thinking that maybe we could use the power of our imaginations to try to cool us down when the power of air conditioners is failing. So I did a little bit of research uh, over the weekend into, rather than looking at the hottest temperatures that we've experienced, because they're a bit too close to home the coldest temperatures that we've experienced in canberra but also in other places to put things into perspective so uh apparently the coldest temperature on record that canberra has officially experienced and i'm sure that some suburbs and places are, are slightly colder or warmer than others was minus 10 degrees on the 11th of july in 1971 so that's pretty chilly but not as chilly as a couple of other places around Australia. Where would you imagine the coldest place in Australia would be, roughly? Tasmania. Well, I'm looking uh, at you, Jared. <laughs> yeah, but, um, I don't know. Somewhere in a maybe in a valley, inland somewhere. Ooh. I don't know. I think Jared's more onto things with the inland business. Tasmania is actually not as cold as you'd imagine because it's small, so it's always got the coast to moderate the temperatures. Uh, there's a, a story that it, there's nowhere in Tasmania where you're more than two hours' drive from the coast. <laughs> Even at the most the most questionable tiny mountain in the, in the middle of Tasmania, you're only ever two hours away from the coast. So it's not actually as cold as parts of mainland Australia, and Jared could probably tell me more than I can because he lived quite near it. There's only one ski slope in Tasmania, and it's about 45 seconds long. Have you ever been up near that way, near Ben Lomond, before, Jared? Uh, I'd, when I was growing up, I didn't live too far from there, but I didn't actually head up there. I've never been skiing, so... Um, so that, well, it sounds like it wouldn't have lasted very long anyway. No, it's a very, very, <laughs> no. very short ski run. So Tasmania is definitely cold, but not the coldest place in Australia. Inland is a good idea. It was actually in Charlotte Pass in New South Wales, so up in the mountains, which makes yeah. sense Because yeah. that's reasonably close to Mount Kosciuszko, isn't yes, it? Yes, rather Pass? close, yeah. 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 So actually not all that far away from Canberra, so that can make us feel better when we're in the winter <laughs> that we're close to the coldest place in Australia. Mm. Uh, and it was minus 23 degrees Celsius or centigrade. I always get confused which one we should be using there. Celsius. Yes, minus yeah. 23 degrees C at any rate uh, in 1994. So that's Australia. But around the world, I thought I knew as one of these fun pub quiz facts uh, where the coldest place in the world was, but it turns out that uh, that record has changed quite recently. So I don't know if any of you guys have in your mind the place that, that's known for being the coldest historically in the world. It was, it's somewhere in Russia, isn't it? Mm, yeah, I, I, it's, you know, Siberia comes to mind. Siberia. To me, but I, 
I don't know precisely. Really? The Russian thing is heading you in the right direction in terms of naming, but not in the right direction in terms of place. It's actually a Russian research station in Antarctica. Ah, And Antarctica is way, way, way colder than the North Pole. So historically, the record was at the Russian Vostok Research Station, where it was recorded as being minus 89 degrees in 1983 but in 2010 that record was broken uh right in the big high mountains in the eastern area of antarctica they recorded minus 93.2 degrees celsius so even colder again but that's on earth we can go even colder places again we can look at the coldest place in the solar system where would that sensibly be in our solar system in our solar system i'd go for neptune it's about as far away from the sun as you can get. Yeah, I mean, out. I mean, Pluto these days is not a uh, not a graced with being a planet, but uh, maybe that's maybe it's True. pretty cold out there too. Well, that's what I would have guessed. I would have thought Pluto, and I'm pretty sure at primary school I have a very vague memory, as much as it was a while ago now that we were told that Pluto was the coldest place in the solar system. But uh-huh. not only has it lost the title of planet, it's lost the title of coldest place in the solar system oh, as well. <laughs> it's not having a very good Times week. Times hard for Pluto. Very <laughs> hard for Pluto. So Pluto's around about minus 230 degrees Celsius. But it's picked at the post for coldest place in the solar system by none other than our moon. Which sounds no. really odd because it's way closer to the sun than Pluto. Yeah. But this is a spot on the cold, dark side of the moon in a really, really uh. deep valley. So it's always in shadow, like as right. we mentioned before, with valleys and the idea that the sun only pokes in and warms things up for a little part of the day. These are such deep, steep valleys that these areas are always in darkness. So if Pluto's minus 230 degrees, then this dark side of the moon valley area is about minus 240 degrees celsius so a good 10 degrees colder so you know good on good on the dark side of the moon uh the last thing i'll suggest though is that something that was in our solar system and i'm not quite sure where it is today i would have to check on the internet uh is a man-made thing that's even colder again uh the european space agency's Planck spacecraft uh that has a really big telescope is flying out and out and outwards to take photos out beyond our solar system and it's been cooling off as it's been flying and at the moment it's about minus 273.05 degrees celsius which is a really significant number as much as it sounds like a mouthful because it's only 0.1 of a degree celsius warmer than absolute zero wow so the spacecraft and also i think some labs uh on earth where we where we cool things down ridiculously ridiculously cold to do really amazing physics experiments they're actually man-made cold and they're colder than the cosmic microwave background that surrounds us uh and yeah 0.1 degree off everything just stopping working at absolute zero well i think that's an interesting thing about uh cold versus heat because of course cold you can get down to that point where there's just no more energy left so you can suck all the energy out of it energy of course being almost you know equivalent to heat in some ways um and and they haven't managed to reach absolute zero because they just can't get things to slow down to do it enough yeah um but then on the other end of the scale the heat is just endless i don't think there's an absolute Hot. Hot, yeah. I was going to say the opposite, like, because you could just keep going up and up and up. Like, an absolute zero seems, you know, 
I know it's hard to compare on our relatives on a on, on the temperature scale, mm. but it seems so close to the temperature we're at now. You know, we, we live at about well at the moment it's twenty eight point six degrees outside. Um, and you know that's that's about three hundred degrees away from absolute zero. It doesn't sound that far no, off, does it? No. Whereas if you go three hundred degrees up from where we are now, three hundred and uh, three hundred and twenty-eight degrees. You know that that's a lot of equipment in labs would sterilise uh, things at, at sort of those sorts of temperatures, um, and then you can go higher and higher again. You get furnaces, kilns, melting metal, sixteen hundred degrees, and then you go on the sun, and it it just keeps getting hotter and hotter. Like I, I wonder if there is a an end to the absolute heat that you can get. Well, things certainly change when things get hot. We go from, in the same way as sort of the molecules in the atoms stop moving when things move to absolute zero, then atoms and molecules get ripped apart and behave really, really differently at super high temperatures. So maybe it's not so much an absolute high temperature, but a temperature at which we wouldn't be able to recognise and describe what's going on might be a way of thinking about it. Yeah, I don't know that we'd be around. (laughs) No, I don't think we would be around to watch it either, sadly. Take notes on the clipboard and just spontaneously combust um, as well as you probably. But, Probably. Yes. <laughs> but no, as you say, the idea of having, uh, you know, relative temperature scales and, and not relative temperature scales is really complex. I think in some mm. ways it's, I feel like we should start teaching all our children to think in degrees Kelvin rather than degrees Celsius because it, it's not a very useful way to think about things when 15 degrees isn't, you know, half the temperature of 30 degrees. It would be lovely yeah. if we could think more readily in that different unit yeah. in That's some respects. Definitely. I guess there's the convenience of having zero uh, you know, around the, the freezing point of water, it just kind of seems, it feels seems nice. right. It yeah. does. It does but rather than two, what, 273.15. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's you know. it. But it certainly, ha- then we'd have to change all the dials on the fridges and the freezers and that sort of thing, mm. you know. Or could, just add plus 273 to all of them. That could work too. <laughs> could be the new, you know, Y2K bug. <laughs> you know, could crash everything if we attempted such a... Um, such a conversion. Well, yeah, especially if, yeah, you know, would that mean fridges start heating themselves up to 273 degrees Celsius well, if they don't, don't <laughs> realise they've been converted? It could uh, wreak havoc with air conditioners as well, I suppose. Yes. You know? Oh, they'd be... Um, <laughs> Yeah, they'd be hot or cold. Who knows? I well, take it back. Maybe we shouldn't change. Yeah, Maybe things right. should stay the way right. they are in case the, the apocalyptic, very, very hot zombies take over the world. <laughs> but that's, that's to try to keep us cool at any rate. So as much as it's very hot and being cool might be nice, we probably don't want to be as cool as the dark side of the moon. Yes. No, I think I we think can that's, rest that's comfortably um, there. Fair enough that we can keep a little yeah. bit warmer than that. Um, but, yeah. you know, when it is super hot like it has been, you know, we've had plus 30 degree temperatures for quite a while now, plus 35 for most days. Mm. This week, I think we were looking up before it got to 38 uh, yesterday. 39, 39 yesterday. yesterday. Yeah. And uh, in Adelaide earlier this week, it was 46 degrees. <laughs> supposed to, no, no, I beg your pardon. 40. 44. It was predicted as 46, which would, would have beaten all of Adelaide's previous hottest records. Um, but 44 degrees in Adelaide, which helped the UN to name it the world's hottest city uh, for, for that day, which is pretty amazing. You know, Adelaide's not really a desert city or anything like that. There's plains and there's it's beach. It's near and the coast and... Rivers and we're very, very mm. hot. So I've got family down there. And in fact, I, I must share this because it's quite interesting. I've had multiple friends posting photos on Facebook of them feeding water to koalas. Oh. Um, 
Which is very sweet, because koalas normally get most of their uh, liquids from the leaves that they eat, um, but of course hot weather would also dry out the leaves and they get dehydrated as well, so it's rare they'll actually drink um, water, uh, but they've been getting very, very thirsty, so they've been coming up to people for drinks, uh, which is kind of amazing, just drinking out little Mm. containers of water. Um, Yeah, well, I heard some advice being given out to leave leave some water out if you can for animals to to access in yeah. a, you know in a safe place um, yeah. it's pretty toasty out there pretty dry mm. well i did that on my veranda yesterday i sort of left a bucket of water after i'd watered the plants i had sort of half a bucket of water left and thought i'll just leave it and in the same way as well, i don't know maybe i'm a bit nerdy but i find it exciting to come home after it's rained and look how much rain has filled up the bucket <laughs> as a really primitive rain gauge i sort of had an evaporation rain gauge yesterday where i could yeah. go, and go oh my gosh half of it's evaporated that's really really scary yeah yeah, that's right. That's or right. maybe a koala came along Snuck and... Uh, up and drank it yes. all It is possible, Jared. I should have considered that. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the heat certainly has a big effect on animals and it has a big effect on us too. And, you know, it can... I don't know if you guys feel this, but you just get a bit irritable in the heat. Definitely. You just, um, you know, and you get... And it's... Yeah. Uh, you get a bit aggressive sometimes. I mean, as you all heard this morning my brain just went to pieces it's a bit scatterbrained and it's it's all because um you know we have trouble sleeping and less mm-hmm. sleep makes our body react we get dehydrated um, which again means our body doesn't uh, operate at its optimal conditions and also being restricted in our daily activities too like not being able to just go outside walk go for a walk if you're grumpy kind of <laughs> stay, stay inside and it, it all contributes to our worsening mood in warm weather um, but one thing I didn't realise for some people is that some people get a little bit sad in summer And by sad, I'm actually using an acronym there, which is uh, Seasonal Affective Disorder. Which usually you hear about for the winter. I, coming from Townsville, am constantly miserable and grumpy in winter. I've never heard of it as a summer phenomenon. Yeah, it's it's, um, a lot more common um, in winter. um, And, you know... It's it's more than just feeling depressed and grouchy in the summer heat. It's actually, um, you know, people feel uh, enormously anxious in the summertime um, and uh, they can even become suicidal. Um, it, they just find the heat and the sun almost impossible to, to put up with. They just can't do it. Um, you know, which is, which is amazing that, that it can have this huge effect because, yes, I think being in um, Canberra, uh, people are a bit more used to the, the winter seasonal affective disorder, um, which is it's very true too. Um, you know, you get the the winter blues, um, but again, it's um, there's there's people that that get it to an extreme level. Um, but I find it quite interesting the the treatments for the seasonal affective disorders as well, um, because. You know, in in winter, certainly you can become you know lethargic and too depressed to even leave the house. Um, but one of the biggest things to do is actually get outside and go for a walk, do some exercise, do that sort of thing. Um, another interesting one for the um, the winter seasonal affective disorder is um, to expose yourself to some light. Um, because obviously it's it's getting darker earlier and the sun's rising later, you know. Sometimes you might drive to work in the dark and drive home in the dark and so you don't see the sun at all. And so um, 
being exposed to, to um, you know, a few extra hours of light, and people can actually use a light box um, to help with this, uh, which is really interesting. Um, and, uh, yeah, so light and exercise are two of the biggest things that you need when it's cold. So when it's hot... Light and exercise. <laughs> we Do you need the opposite, getting... dark and hiding still in a corner? Well, you <laughs> think um, you could almost go the, the complete opposite, but it's not quite the complete opposite. Um, dark isn't necessarily recommended. Um, it is recommended, you know, that you, you listen to your body, though, so try and stay out of the sun a little bit and stay hydrated. Having lots of water is really important. But exercise is still on there as well um, as, as one of the things uh, that's really important. Um, you, you still have to listen to your body and, you know, don't go out in the middle of the day and go for a 10K jog. That's not <laughs> the recommendation. Um, but, you know, get it in in the morning or the evening and get your exercise happening and get things happening in your body so, you know, you're not just sitting around doing nothing and getting irritated by the heat more and more. So there we are. So that's that's our recommendation from Fuzzy. If it's cool today, go out and go for a walk. Download a podcast from Fuzzy and, and listen to that while you go for a walk. You know, our podcasts are still online. They remain online. Just go to iTunes and type in Fuzzy Logic or head to Fuzzy Logic on 2xx.podbean.com and you can download them from there. And I'm sure that's another fantastic way to avoid seasonal affective disorder because we'll keep you entertained. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, go for a walk as well. We'll distract you from the heat. And that's a nice amount of time to be going for a walk as well. Yeah, yeah, about 40, 50 minutes. Mm. Sounds good to me. It's very close to 12 o'clock here on 2XX FM Community Radio, 98.3 on the dial. And you're listening to Fuzzy Logic, your science show on a Sunday. Broderick here with Alice and Jared in the studio. And previously we were talking about the hot and cold of the world this week and what's going on with that. But, of course, there's some amazing science happening too. And, uh, look, I mean, we've been using our imaginations here this morning to try and cool down with Alice talking about cold stuff. And, you know, maybe we can use our imaginations to dive into the water and see the fish. Does that sound like a good plan? I think that sounds like a good plan because there's some new research come out really just last week about taking a, a census of a fish population or population of fish now. Right, so we're going to dive down with our clipboards and uh, start asking them questions what religion are they their age how they live yeah well uh you know the problem with fish is they don't typically tend to fill out the survey they don't, right. don't do so well on uh on that measure um and which is a bit of a problem so i mean traditionally if you want to find out the kinds of fish that are in a, in a marine environment you have to take a visual survey so maybe divers uh, heading down and and making note of the fish that are there or, or sometimes trawling as well you can look at the fish that you bring up yeah uh, there are some problems though with these kind of traditional methods mm. um, i mean they can be time intensive um, they can can miss uh, miss fish uh, species, so you get false negatives. So you think something's not there when it when it actually is. And you know, in the case of something like trawling, uh, can be quite uh, invasive as well. So uh, some researchers in the U.S. Uh, have reported uh, what might be a new way to take a census of a marine environment. So. What they've done in a, in a paper published in the journal PLOS One, uh, Ryan Kelly and his colleagues from Stanford University and the University of Washington, uh, they've reported that it might be t- possible to take a census of a marine environment 
by taking a sample of water from that environment and analysing the DNA found in that sample, or what's called the environmental DNA or eDNA. Now, living organisms, uh, including us, uh, we're constantly shedding cells. Uh, you know, we lose many thousands of thousands of skin cells you know, every, every hour. And in this respect, fish are not really any difference. You know, uh, they're losing their skin cells, bodily waste, damaged tissue. All of this uh, is shed into the water. So the ocean is littered with fish cells, uh, and each of those cells contain the DNA of the fish uh, from which it was shed. Um, and the researchers actually describe the ocean as a soup of genetic material. Now, that makes it sound charming to go for a it, swim. In it does in change the, the way you think ocean. about going for a swim. Mm. Um, now, what they demonstrate in this research is it's possible to identify the types of fish present in an environment based on an analysis of that soup of environmental DNA. So they do this by taking a sample of water, you know, sort of filtering it. They make copies of the fish DNA uh, from vertebrate fish. And then they sequence that DNA to determine the kinds of fish that are present. So in order to test this approach, they took some samples from a tank at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, uh, which is among one of the biggest biggest tanks in the world, I'm told, of about 4.5 million litres um, in size. So using this method, they were able to identify four of the eight uh, families of fish present within the, within the tank. And they were also able to uh, pick up some other, other things too, like, for example, the, the fish uh, that were used to feed the fish within the tank. So it's quite a, quite a promising technique, uh, though it's not without some, some limitations. So, for example, one of the problems that the researchers point out is that the method's not so good at, at picking up the rarer fish or the less abundant fish. Um, and this might be because a fish is not actually abundant, you know, it's not actually there, or it could be the fact that the fish doesn't shed as many cells into the water compared to other fish. So that's one of the complications, among others, that means that the method has a, a bit of difficulty sort of getting a good indication of the actual abundance of the fish a reliable indication based on this this approach of looking at the DNA in the water. Um, but nonetheless, it, it may, may be able to develop this further into a useful complement to those traditional ways of taking a, a census of, of the fish in an environment. Um, though I don't think I don't think the Australian Bureau of Statistics will be using it for the next census uh, in <laughs> just I go through our garbage and and see what they can work out from that that sort of thing well yeah. maybe maybe yeah <laughs> i think you could tell a lot from someone's garbage <laughs> well but this sort of thing has a real lot of promise i guess in in terms of monitoring not just the fish that are there but looking out for things like invasive species potentially if we're able to continuously look at and take samples i've done a little bit of fish monitoring and coral monitoring in the past and usually travel along a transect and it's a really really slow process and really slow to really prone to errors as you say particularly because some fish hide during the day and some come out at right. night some hide in little crevices some are found in different places some move from place to place so the more different the, the the more different approaches that we can use to try to look at this thing i think i think the better it's going to be and that's really exciting yeah, yeah and i mean the, the convenience of this approach is that you merely need a sample of water uh in order to to conduct the analysis um but 
you know, as the researchers point out, there are some challenges too, as well as having a, a suitable database of all the genetic information. So once you've uh, you've got the DNA out and you've sequenced it, you also need to be able to compare that and see if it matches up with a particular type of fish. Um, so there seems to be a bit of work still to do, but perhaps a promising method to, to complement uh, going around and uh, donning the goggles and going around <laughs> and having a, having a look down there. Definitely. And uh, the idea... Oh, now, I've caught, now I've caught Broderick's disease of having heat brain disease, I think. <laughs> but uh, the, the, the concept of swimming around in a pool full of you know fish poo and fish skin and whether that creeps you out or not, it is a big deal. I used to work in an aquarium many years ago uh, and our big tank was about half the size of Monterey Bay's aquarium, so it was about two and a half million litres. And um, we had lots of different coral. And then we had a separate tank that was about 750,000 litres for our sharks, so quite a bit smaller. And visitors right. assumed and would often ask, oh, are there no sharks in the coral tank because they're going to eat all the fish? And that actually had nothing to do with it. The reason that we kept the sharks and the coral separate was because the sharks were big animals. They did big poos, and they <laughs> uh, basically wrecked the water quality. And corals need a really particular type of water chemistry to stay healthy so we actually stopped the sharks from being in that aquarium not because they ate things but because they pooed too much and they wrecked the water quality the other fun thing that you can keep in mind in terms of not just the ocean but looking at the sand is that in a lot of places if you're sitting on the beach making a sandcastle with your kids there are um, fish called parrotfish who make sand by chomping on coral and then pooping it out and making nice little bits of corally <laughs> sand. So you're actually uh-huh. making sand castles in a lot of cases that have come out the bottom of fish. So if you have any you know, eight-year-old boys who think that would be a fun fact, by all means, pass it on <laughs> next time you go down the coast. I, I think you've now also ruined sand castles for a, a lot of <laughs> yeah. fuzzy listeners out there as That's well. That's right. They've been in the water. The sand's been in the water. It's been washed. I'm sure it's fine. Yeah, yeah that'd be totally okay. All right, well, I hope you're not going to ruin... Uh, what you're talking about next for all the fuzzy listeners because you've got caffeine up next and if you ruin that I think you'll make a lot of people very disappointed Alice so it better be good news no no the, ex- the exact opposite it is really oh, good, good news good. basically right. this this may be one of these examples of science uh, proving something that I think most of us kind of knew or had a very <laughs> strong gut feeling about already yeah. uh, particularly for those people who at one point or another in their lives have studied sort of in senior high school or at university and occasionally resorted to some coffee or some other sort of caffeine containing drinks or beverages or, or, or foods even to get them through their studying and to try to do that last minute cramming of information mm. uh, and what scientists have discovered is that deeply surprisingly coffee does help you study and help you remember things better who would have thought it mm. but the way they proved this was really interesting and and coffee does help you learn and remember information but only in quite a specific way yeah. so what the scientists did was they showed a whole range of different people a bunch of pictures of different things so of seahorses and baskets and apples and all sorts of things one day and then they gave them some either some caffeine that was about the equivalent of two strong cups of coffee or a placebo so that's really, really important that some people got a placebo effect, some people got some coffee. They then sent them home for the day and they came back the next day and they were shown some new pictures. Some of them were the same as the pictures from the day before, some of them were totally different and some of them were similar. So, for example, uh, on the first day they might have been shown a picture of a basket with one handle. The next day they were shown a picture of a basket with two handles, so something subtly different. Right. And these yeah. two groups were tested. Uh, the level of caffeine in their bodies was monitored overnight. And what they found was that both groups, placebo and caffeine group did pretty well at picking the things that were the same 
and the things that weren't there at all. Yeah. But in terms of the things that had changed subtly, the caffeine group were quite a bit better. Okay. They were much better at picking up when things had changed a little bit. So it turns out caffeine is useful maybe, and this is me hypothesising here, it helps you with those tricky multiple choice questions where you seem to have three questions that are all worded very similarly <laughs> and you have to tell the difference between them. Yeah. So a little bit of coffee, I'm not suggesting having, you know, 10 or 12 espressos before your exam, but a little bit might not be the worst thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because there's lots of different studies because obviously remembering things is rather important. And another one I read a little while ago uh, showed that if you are studying for your history exam, then when you study for it, um, if you have like a, a, a certain smell or aroma happening uh, while you study, if you then repeat that aroma in the exam, um, it'll help you remember what you're studying at the same oh. time because you can relate it. So I wonder whether the coffee was taken before mm. they were doing the exam or after. I will have to double say, check. Yeah. Let me have a quick look. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose... You did say there was a placebo group drinking placebo coffee. That's right. You? And so uh, it doesn't actually say whether it was before or after. I think it was yeah, pretty yeah. much at the same time as yeah, they were doing the test. But I, I suppose if there's a placebo group with a coffee drink that smelt like coffee was the same each time, then that would kind of negate those sorts of effects. But, yeah, it's interesting, yeah. different ways we can help our brain to work and remember things. They're not sure about the long term. This was only yeah. a short-term test, so they're not really sure in terms of rem- remembering things down the track. But if you do need to, for a short period of time, remember things this might not be a bad little addition to add to your you know flashcards and other very high-tech ways of remembering <laughs> things for exams yeah. well i mean speaking of uh, remembering things there's some other research that relates to whether taking a photograph of something actually helps you to remember it or not you know because we're all getting out our iphones or other other phones cameras taking shots of things in the moment with a view to perhaps remembering it better or or experiencing a a concert uh recording it uh for for memory but does does taking a photo actually actually help and there's some research uh, done by a researcher named linda henkel uh, from fairfield university where they had a group of students uh, and they sent them out uh, into an art museum and for some of the the art pieces in the museum the students were asked to take a photograph and for others, they were asked to observe the piece. And they later uh, sort of quizzed the students on the names of the, the pieces and details about them. And they found that the students who, uh, for those uh, taking a photograph of the objects, uh, recalled less detail uh, about them uh, and performed uh, poorly uh, or compared to those who were simply making observations rather than taking the shot. But uh, interestingly, they then did a, did a follow-up uh, where the students taking the photos in, this, in the second round were asked to zoom in on a particular aspect of the art piece or the sculpture. And they found that by uh, asking them to, to zoom in and take a photo of a specific part, then the difference between the two groups, that is the observers and, and just those taking the photographs, was eliminated. So... So by sort of concentrating a bit more and zooming in and, uh, I suppose, composing the, the shot a bit more, yeah. that difference in uh, recall of features of the, the art pieces uh, was resolved. So um, it's an interesting, interesting kind of study, I think, because mm. um, it seems to me that um, you know, taking, a, taking a quick photo may actually cause you to remember less detail 
about something compared to just taking it in. And as you say, it does seem to be a very trendy thing that you you go to a rock concert and not everyone, you know, people aren't watching and cheering. They're all holding their phones up trying to get some really low quality video of of the event. I went on a trip oh a while ago now actually, but on a boat to go and see some whales and dolphins and stuff. And I realised that my camera had run out of batteries really early on in the trip, and I was really narky originally going, oh, I wanted to take these photos and everything, but it was kind of lovely to just put the camera away and go, nope, I'm just going to look at everything and take it all in. And it was actually really refreshing in a different mm. way not not to be focused on a camera yeah well I, I definitely agree with you there alice in fact i had a similar one when i went um scuba diving earlier this year and on the one dive uh the, my very last dive in fact i um my camera had managed to run its batteries out um completely i ended up with three hours footage of the inside of a bucket um uh. which was great uh but, but on, so on the last dive none of uh, my camera ran out and then we saw a turtle and we followed this turtle for about 15 minutes. And I just remember thinking at the time, oh, why isn't my camera working? And then I had that thought for about 30 seconds and then just spent the rest of it just watching the turtle and just being like, whoa. And, and to me, like that, the memory of this turtle is, is very clear in my mind still. Mm-hmm. Like I remember it exactly eating the, the coral and, and munching on the stuff down the bottom and doing every little movement he did. So I wonder whether it would have been the same had my camera actually been working. Mm, yeah, it's inter- yeah. interesting. I mean, for me, I, uh, going to a concert or something like that, I prefer to... To, to live it, you know, yeah. to experience it rather than having it mediated by, um, by the little camera, camera finder. But, uh, you know, at least as far as this, this research goes, it suggests it's, you know, it's not all bad. It's, it also seems to be how you use your mm. camera, you know, for those students who were sort of zooming in on a particular aspect, their um, recall was not, not reduced compared to the others. So I suppose it's how you engage with that that use of the camera as well which seems to matter yeah definitely well if you want to zoom in on the uh, fuzzy logic science show and actually experience yourself you can do that because we've got our fuzzy logic do try this at home experiment discover explore science do try this at home on fuzzy logic Hi, it's Broderick here, and I've got a fantastic summer experiment today. It's going to keep you cool, and unlike most science experiments, I'm going to let you drink this one afterwards. To try this experiment, all you'll need is a glass bottle full of liquid from the store, like a soft drink bottle or a glass bottle of water. It doesn't need to be a big one, just a small one will do you fine. And you're also going to need a freezer, just your average at-home freezer. Combining these two things, we're going to make something amazing happen. Now, this actually happened to me a while ago, which I thought was really cool, so I thought we'd try it out as an experiment. You see, what I did was I really wanted a drink, but unfortunately the soft drink that I had was in the cupboard. So I took my glass bottle of soft drink, put it in the freezer to chill it down, make it really drinkable, and then I forgot about it. However, I came back a few hours later and took it out of the freezer and it was still liquid. So I thought, that's fantastic, I can still drink it. But then when I went to open it, something strange happened. And we're going to see if we can do that again today with our experiment. So the first thing you're going to do is you're going to take your glass bottle of soft drink or water or whatever you've got, and if there's any labels on the bottom, we're going to take them off, okay? Because we want to be able to see through that glass and see the liquid inside. Once you've done that, The next step is to take your bottle, open the freezer, and put your bottle inside. 
You want to make sure that your bottle is standing upright, not lying down. And you want to make sure it's reasonably accessible so that when you take it out in the freezer, you're not going to have to move stuff out the way. You can just grab it and take it. Once you put it inside the freezer, close the door. And then... Oh, I should have said we need a bit of time for this experiment. You're going to have to leave it in the freezer for two, three, four hours. Okay, so we're just going to leave that for a little while and come back later. Alright, it's about three hours later now, so let's see how our bottle is doing. I'm going to open up the freezer, and when I take my bottle out, I'm going to be really careful that I don't knock or jolt it. Because interestingly, even though it's been in the freezer for three hours, it is still a liquid. So I'm going to grab that bottle really carefully and put it down on a table. Okay, now... I'm going to watch this liquid in the bottle because I'm just about to open it and we're going to see what happens. Whoa! So, what's happened inside this bottle is the liquid is suddenly turning to ice. But it's happening slowly throughout the bottle. So it started at the top and it's slowly making its way down as though the ice is travelling through the bottle and it's travelling through the bottle, through from top down to the bottom until now what was just a liquid a few seconds ago has now all turned to ice it's not solid ice but it's a reasonably mushy ice so why when i open the bottle would it suddenly change from a liquid into a solid or change from being a drinkable drink into ice what's going on well this is all to do with it being a super cooled liquid now, we all know that water freezes at zero degrees. That's when it changes from being liquid water into ice. And when I put this bottle into the freezer, the freezer is about minus 20 degrees. So when the bottle was in the freezer, it was probably below zero degrees. But the drink inside still remained a liquid, even though it was probably below zero. And that's because there was nowhere for the ice to start forming or it was missing what's called a nucleation site. A nucleation site is some sort of impurity, uh, a bit of dirt, uh, a bit of an imperfection in the glass, or something in the, the drink itself that gives it the ice a place to start forming. Because ice finds it difficult to start on its own. It needs something to start it off. It's kind of like when there's a dance floor at the wedding and the music's pumping and going but no one's going out on the dance floor to dance until eventually one person goes out there and then suddenly everyone's there because it's okay to be dancing now and that one person that starts off the dance is a bit like a nucleation site to help water freeze in the bottles that we've got if you purchased it from the shops it's probably been cleaned by high pressure equipment so it's really clean inside the bottle there's very few uh, nucleation sites in there until you open it up once you open it up that causes a few of the carbon dioxide bubbles inside the drink to release and suddenly they become fantastic nucleation sites this means that because the water is well below zero degrees suddenly it has a nucleation site to start forming that ice and we see the amazing ice make its way throughout the drink to change it from a liquid to a solid now this is one experiment i really do want you to try at home because it just is so simple and looks amazing 
If you give it a go, try and take a photo or a video and put it on our Facebook page so we can see how you go. I've been Broderick, and that's all for this week's Do Try This at Home. Happy experimenting. And that was the fray there with their cover of Manamana, uh, which is, of course, made famous by the Muppets. Um, and that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> the time it's is 12... It is, it is. <laughs> and uh, the time's 12.24. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic, a science on a Sunday, here on 2XX Community Radio. Broderick with you, and Alice and Jared are also in the studio with me. Uh, now, as usual, we only have an hour of science on a Sunday, uh, but that doesn't mean your fun has to stop here because there's so much other science happening out there. There's science everywhere. It's all around us. But there are special events that are actually organised for people that are interested in science, and there's a few of those happening this week uh, at Questacon. Today, in fact, at 3 o'clock, they're hosting a free screening of a movie called Flock of Dodos in conjunction with the ACT branch of the Australian Skeptics. Now, Flock of Dodos is a documentary which looks at the relationship between evolution, creationism and this new idea of intelligent design. And the film's the work of an evolutionary ecologist who takes a critical look at intelligent design and also the way evolutionists tackle the topic. Um, So that's happening at 3 o'clock over at Questacon and it's in the Japan Theatre, which means you don't actually have to pay to get into Questacon. You can just go along to this screening uh, for that one. Also happening this week at uh, the uh, ANU um, from today until Friday, uh, there's a space short course, Understanding Satellite Utilisation, Serving Australia from Space. Uh, So in this course, students work with experts and partners to explore the question, are we meeting Australia's current and future needs? Uh, Interestingly, the program will use tropical cyclone Yazi as the context to explain how we use satellite services and space-derived data. And we'll look at all aspects of the space industry with an emphasis on Australia's needs. Uh, for more details on that one, just head to billboard.anu.edu.au. Uh, but that's happening this week at uh, Mount Stromlow Observatory um, from today until Friday. Uh, so some interesting space stuff there. And there's one more interesting space thing that's happening this week, which is at the CSIRO Discovery Centre uh, on North Science Road in Acton at the Black Mountain building there. Uh, And this is a talk called Mars Rover, 10 Years of Exploration. Now, that's happening on the 23rd of January at 5 o'clock and also the 24th of January at 2 o'clock. and in this event, uh, Professor Paolo de Souza is talking about the little rover that could, the Opportunity oh. Mars rover. Um, ten years ago, NASA's twin sister rovers, dubbed Spirit and Opportunity, uh, bounced to daunting air cushion landings on opposite sides of the red planet for what was planned to be just three-month missions. Uh, but this month, Opportunity celebrates a truly remarkable event, a tenth anniversary of continued exploration on the cold surface of Mars and uh, well beyond the warranty of that. Uh, So at the talk, you'll learn how this brave rover changed the way we understand the evolution of the solar system, leading to the discovery of past environments on Mars suitable for life. 
As I said, that's at CSIRO Discovery Centre this Thursday, 23rd January at 5 o'clock and Friday, 24th January at 11 and 2 o'clock. Uh, bookings are essential. Head to csiro.au for more details. Now, before we wrap up today, we have been talking about hot and cold and trying to cool people down in this hot, hot weather. And uh, unfortunately, I'm going to finish on bad news, which is never a good way to finish a show, really, on bad news. But it's true. Research out of University of New South Wales, published in Nature, uh, has telling us that global average temperatures will rise at least 4 degrees by 2100, that's the year 2100, and potentially more than 8 degrees by 2200 if carbon dioxide emissions are not reduced, are not reduced, which is pretty worrying indeed. Um, the research has shown that climate models indicate indicating a low temperature response to a doubling of carbon dioxide from pre-industrial times, so it's before the humans started having an impact, uh, are not reproducing the correct processes that lead to cloud formation. Um, so that's interesting that their models aren't showing that, which means that uh, when the processes are correct in the climate models, the level of climate sensitivity is far higher. You know, previous estimates, estimates of the sensitivity of global temperature to a doubling of carbon dioxide raised from one and a half to five degrees this new research takes away that lower end meaning the global average temperatures will increase by three to five degrees with the doubling of carbon dioxide which is really quite quite worrying um very worrying stuff out there so i'd encourage you if you can to check out that research on uh, the climate models there um because it's it's quite amazing. Interestingly, the researchers note that you know climate sceptics like to criticise climate models for getting things wrong, and the scientists say they're the first to admit that they're not perfect. But what they're finding is that the mistakes are being made by those models which predict less warming, mm. not those that predict more. And rises in global temperatures, rises in global temperatures of this magnitude, will have profound impacts on the world and the economies of many countries if we don't urgently start to curb our emissions. So, certainly, a very important message there that things are getting hotter, and uh, we've got to start doing something about it. Uh, yeah, I said it wasn't a good idea to finish on bad news. <laughs> it is, it's disappointing, uh, but. Well, look, there is some, interest, some interesting news out of it in that uh, we were talking about this earlier, Alice, that this week Brian Schmidt is, was so certain of climate change happening and global temperatures rising that he placed a bet. He did indeed. Uh, Morris Newman, who uh, is sort of a, a business advisor, sort of a gentleman, uh, wrote an opinion piece in The Australian, I think, earlier this week, basically, to paraphrase in a big way, saying climate change is bunk and I'm happy to bet $10,000 with anyone who will take me on that in 10 degrees time the world won't be any, war any warmer. In 10 years' time. In ten, 20 years' time, sorry, years I should time. say. 20 oh, years' right. time yep. that the world won't be any warmer on average. Uh, and he wrote this uh, fairly firmly worded opinion piece, uh, which was responded to by none other than Brian Schmidt of uh, Nobel Prize winning fame, who wrote a, a fairly a fairly equally passionate but on, on the different side of the fence reply, uh, saying, I'm very, very happy to take on your $10,000 bet. As a scientist, I realise that, you know, as Broderick's just said, we can never know things for certain, and even though on average things are getting warmer, there could be small-scale variations. So there's a very, very ch small chance that I will lose my $10,000, but I'm happy to take you on because I'm 99% sure that the world is getting hotter. So uh, keep tuned in 20 years' time if he <laughs> wins his bet. I really, really hope 
Well, actually, I hope he doesn't. I hope it is cooler, but I, I hope that he does. So yeah. good on Branch, Mish. <laughs> and I, I believe um, Australia's chief scientist, Ian Chubb, uh, also has written a response to that article as well, which is worth checking out. Yeah. Oh, well, online. we might have to post those online to the Facebook so listeners can have a look at those themselves and see what all our scientists are talking about. But that's got to wrap it up today for Fuzzy Logic. So thank you very much, Jared, for coming in. Thanks for having me, Brad. And thanks for coming in, Alice. This is going to be your last Fuzzy Logic for a while. It is for a little while, but uh, hopefully I'll be back to visit down the track. You never know. But it's been really, really fun and lovely. So yeah. thank you very much. You can be our correspondent. Uh, Responded in the West now. I will. I'll be sending you science updates from Perth. It'll be fantastic. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, thanks very much for joining us, listeners, and I hope you enjoyed Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday.